Welcome to FileMaker Talk Business Edition. In this episode, Jonathan Fletcher will sit down with Mark Richmond from Skeleton Key and have a great discussion. Okay. So you finish that cool app for the client. They ask you to set up the server to run it on. And then they ask you to run some networking. And since it's FileMaker, you also have to get up close and personal with their router. Then one of their computers starts misbehaving. Pretty soon, you're their go-to IT person. For their part, the client is faced with a tough decision. Do they hire someone who has all the skills they need and let you get back to writing software? But what if they can't afford it? Can they even find someone with all the skills and all the technologies that even a small business needs? Does that mean they need to settle for something less? In your mind, you face your own tough decision. Do you resist the pull to expand who you are? Or do you embrace it and branch out in new directions? And if that is your choice, what does that look like? Mark Richmond faced a sort of schizophrenia. Was he a software company that did IT? Or was the place where he spent his working hours really a tech company that also happened to write software? In order to allow the multiple personalities free reign to rule their own domains, his decision was remarkably Solomonic. He split his baby in two. Mark's original company, Skeleton Key, is a platinum FBA in St. Louis, Missouri, well known for their prowess in training and solution development. Recently, they spun off their managed IT services into a company named BrightSource. Mark is a certified developer, authorized trainer, author of FileMaker how-to articles and white papers, and a frequent presenter at DevCon and other FileMaker-related conferences. He has presented on webinars for both FileMaker and FM Academy, of which Skeleton Key is a member. Skeleton Key has received an Excellence Award from the FBA and a FileMaker Mad Dog Award. Mark enjoys talking about his favorite subject, founding, growing, and maintaining a business that revolves around FileMaker. He also gives voice to the hurdles he faced when some of the services he offered were only loosely related to FileMaker. I was an independent FileMaker developer on and off for years before I ever moved to St. Louis. I'm not from here. I'm a transplant. And I, when I came out here, I was uh, doing independent uh, development for clients of mine in, in, around, in around New England, where I'm from, and, uh, and took a position here with an Apple reseller um, uh, since I had some history working with ACNs or Apple reselling companies or working in, in various types of Apple support inside companies. And that's sort of you know how I ran into FileMaker um, in sort of a mixed environment where I had an opportunity to build an app for both sides of the business in New York. And uh, so I came out here and took that job and, and found it wasn't really a good fit. I was, I was usually happier when I was either working for a, a large corporation and could make serious impacts. Strangely enough, I had more fun making impacts there than in small companies or, or running my own business. So somewhere around 2000, I went back out on my own. Um, I moved here in 96. In 2000, I went back out on my own, working with clients both regionally and as well as back east. And had made some contacts along the way, um, including another transplant who was from out of town. He was also from New England. And we started kicking around the idea of all the you know, business that was being coming at us, both the IT business. And I did a lot of Cisco networking back then, some of the FileMaker development business, and how I was turning away business that I couldn't act on just for lack of capacity. And he could only do work on the side because he worked for a in-house IT group for an advertising agency. And um, so long story short, we agreed that it would make sense for us to put out a shingle and form our own business and, um, and start to 
say yes to people as opposed to, sorry, I can't do that right now. So it took a, a, about a year and a half to put together the plan. We had no experience doing that. And that was 2002 that we kind of found the name of the company and formed the LLC and did the, listed the DBA for the skeleton key name and got the domain. And, so and then, did, did you have somebody guide you through that process? You know, I went to a few meetings for um, groups through the Small Business Administration. I read some books and online articles. I talked to various mentors and colleagues, but it was um, it was tradition. It was kind of the standard. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, everyone says I need a business plan. I've never written one. People said to me, "You need a pro forma P and L," and I was like, "What's that?" <laughs> um, and so I, I kind of fudged and faked my way through it. Um, came up with a plan that said I needed. To borrow, I think one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get started. Uh, managed to find a way to secure half that much through private investment and an SBA loan, um, and started the business. Uh, sort of opened our doors, rented a space in June of two thousand four. Um, at that point, there were four or five of us: um, it was me, my partner Oliver, um, uh, an office assistant, a sort of operations person, who was actually my sister-in-law, um, another IT person to work with Oliver and. Mikhail, who was working with me before then, sort of on the side doing various contract work, and he joined us as sort of a full-time contractor as my, my first sort of full-time developer other than me. We had no sales, no marketing, no expertise in finances. We didn't understand P&L, balance sheet, anything. Fla- uh, fast forward, we then accrued and collected various advisors and, and uh, coaches along the way to help guide us toward a more mature understanding of how to run a business. Probably lost a few houses worth of money in the first few years, just not understanding what we were doing and not having good collection procedures and all that stuff. But it wasn't really till I think um, maybe 2007 that we started really getting uh, some steam. Um, and that's when we moved to this office and we're hiring additional developers and such. For the first few years, it was a whole lot of just figuring it out while we were open for business. Um, and then since then, it's been a continued evolution and learning experience. But so you kind of made it up as you went along, kind of a seat of the pants approach. Like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd, I'd run various teams before. My history before coming to, into the IT world um, in any way, shape, or form was in the theater, and I was a, a lighting designer and a set designer and a master electrician and carpenter and technical director and all the kinds of different positions, both from a design and, a, and an, um, an organizational management standpoint. So I knew budgets and timelines and deadlines and, um, and getting teams of people um, to, to do things and, you know, how you have to kind of mop the floor and then hand them the mop and say, that's how you do it. <laughs> and, uh, and so I understood that and I felt comfortable leading in that regard and being, I thought, humble enough to do it in a way that was effective because um, I wasn't dictating. I, I also came, I have some history back in the day of going to a Quaker boarding school and living in a consensus co-educational society at college. So I definitely believed already in these ideas of consensus building and group decision-making that that's possible and doable with the right leadership and, 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 um, and example setting, but it's not easy, but it's certainly, um, so I like wanted to lead, but I wanted to lead a group that was going where they wanted to go collectively. You wanted to be a facilitator. More than yeah. Else. I mean, I, 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 I always like to be the one who has the final say or veto, I'll admit. Um, but I like to not have to use that power, you know, um, that's a much more satisfactory is to sort of be, uh, what's one of the sayings I have around here all the time is that all of us is smarter than any one of us. There's no way I'm smarter than any number of individual people on my team, but collectively we're smarter than any one of us by far. And so if I can facilitate, like you said, or guide while still having the option for, you know, to uh, override, which I, I can't think of a time I've ever had to use the option, but just knowing that, that, um, I still have the reins, but I'm, I'm, uh, 
I don't have to use them to get where we need to go because the team is taking us there is much more satisfying. So um, well, you probably and, have sufficient respect, and and you have uh, referent authority, so that you just by virtue of your position, people will tend to be more cooperative with you if if you treat them with respect, probably. Yeah, and honestly, sometimes that that frustrates me. I, I'm a big believer in speaking truth to power, um, uh, both to clients and then to vendors, and then internally. And I I often wish I'd get more pushback. You know, I worry sometimes that people say yes because they're being um, they're giving into that authority. Maybe because they agree with me. Maybe because they uh, I'm the boss. Um, but I really would rather only they agree with me if they truly agree with me. And if they don't, I'd like them to say, "No, you're wrong. I absolutely disagree with you," and say it right in front of everybody. So we try to model that behavior here um, as much as we can and remind people that this is um, it's not a dictatorship um, and we do that in a variety of ways um, we're an open book company so we follow um, practices where we're uh, basically the, the profit and loss statement the balance sheet our budgeting process our incentive programs all these things are completely transparent and visible to everyone in the company on a regular basis it's not just a uh, we started off with that idea, but we never did anything with it. And in 2009, we actually formally adopted open book management as our management philosophy, which means every week we look at P&L. Every month we look at P&L and, and, um, and balance sheet. We do forecasting in various areas of the business in front of everybody. We have a bonus plan that's in front of everybody. And, and opening up QuickBooks and looking at the numbers and doing the budgets uh, in front of everybody is a regular practice, which means financial literacy, risk mitigation, all kinds of other topics come up with your employees than just doing their job. Um, and so I think that helps to de- develop some of that respect because there's no, you know, people make up stories. If they don't have information, they fill in the blanks. So we try to give them all the information so they don't have to fill in the blanks. And then if there's something to be excited about or worried about, they're grappling with reality and maybe they'll come up with good ideas to help us solve it as opposed to just being ignorant blissfully so um, until like the hammer drops or assuming that I'm taking out bags of money every Saturday night and, you know, surreptitiously, which I'm not. Um, And it's been a very effective way, I think, for us to develop some of those um, cooperative styles of culture around here. That's awesome. So you're ba- you you credit your background with that emphasis? Yeah, I think I was. I think it, it, it appealed to me when I first read the book, "The Great Game of Business" by Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham. Um, I'm sorry, uh, would you repeat called, that? Yeah, the book is called "The Great Game of Business." It's by um, it's about 25 years old at this point by Jack Stack, okay. um, and uh, it was co-written by Bo Burlingham from uh, Inc. I believe. Um, and they just came out with the 20th anniversary edition, actually, just a few weeks ago. Um, it's just been updated and revised. But it's the story of um, the Springfield Remanufacturing Company out of Springfield, Missouri, of all places. I just happened to run into it here. But it's, it was featured in Inc. It's one of the top 100 business books of all time. It's just kind of a, not as visible as some of the ones with catchier titles. But the gist of it was about a company that was going under, and the managers, Jack and others, didn't know what to do because none of them knew how to run a business. All they knew how to do was their little slice of the business. And they figured out a way to get everybody down to the shop floor, um, uh, circled around the most critical number in their business, which for them was paying their loan. And, uh, and how now they've developed you know, something like 56 spin-off businesses, a huge amount of revenue, general profitability, employee ownership, and all by basically educating everybody from the janitor up to the COO um, with how a business operates and what it takes to make money and, and who owns each line item on the P&L and the balance sheet and, and, um, and a variety of other tactics. And then they kind of took that with this book to the world to share it. And um, 
and there's an, any number of businesses from the New Belgium Brewing Company to Harley Davidson to um, um, I'm going to blank on some of them, but there's any number of businesses who espouse and follow open book practices, some more openly than others. Um, and something that for us, I think I was, when I read the book on just sort of a whim, I, and, and there was a local guy who did coaching in it, um, uh, I was naturally inclined, I think, to embrace it because of my history at the boarding school and in the theater and in other areas where working as a team is the way I so like to work. you said a local guy who does coaching, he does coaching on this subject? Yeah, there's a, a guy named Bill Collier here in, um, in St. Louis who was the first franchise coach, effectively. He's the first guy who was kind of certified to teach the open book management to companies who wanted to adopt it. And now there's a, there's a whole contingent of coaches around the country who who teach the great game of business and help you figure out how engaged are your employees? What will it take to teach them financial literacy? Um, how are you going to define what your critical number is? What are your scoreboards going to look like? It, there's three tenets to open book management. One is um, uh, learning the rules, so basically financial literacy, uh, following the action and keeping score, um, and then having a stake in the outcome. So basically people need to understand how a business runs and what drives it. They need to see how we're doing, um, you know, whether it's forecast versus plan or actual or or whatever metrics you're measuring to say, are we succeeding, are we winning or losing the game? And then people have to care. They have to either win or lose if you win or lose. So it's like any game. You can't go into the the soccer pitch or baseball field, and if you don't know how the game is played and you don't know what the score is and you don't care if you win or lose, then how can you get engaged in playing hard? So the idea is that you have all those components, and they teach they teach you and your employees how to make those part of your culture and... Um, you know, either quickly or over time and, and, uh, turn your ship around and get you on the right path for sustainability. And it's not, you know, all roses. We had a great, our first year we did this, we kind of pulled ourselves out of a nosedive. Our second year was all, you know, parades and, and confetti. And, and the third year was less so. And so, you know, there's still all the natural business processes that you go through and the economy around you and other things that can impact you. But you have, um, a toolbox, a system of, how to evaluate your progress and plot your course that you can turn to regardless of the environment you're operating in or whatever might come your way um, to help you rally the team around common causes and common enemies as opposed to, you know, there's a lot of entrenched battle between owners and employees or managers and employees, and I just don't want to truck or brook any of that nonsense. I, and my feeling is that we need to have a very flat, um, you know, consensus-driven environment with leadership to guide and mentor and facilitate as necessary. As you started to be successful with all that you were doing, what was it that led to your decision to divide the business between Skeleton Key and BrightSource, which is your new tech support IT management company? Describe how that process happened. Sure. So we were always, um, we always had both sides of the business. You know, our, even some of the text on our current Skeleton Key website is, is due for, um, well, we've got new content. We just haven't put it up there. But effectively, um, we were always a business that offered effectively two services, uh, custom application development and IT consulting or technology consulting and implementation. And we were always cross-platform and platform agnostic was, I think, the term we used. Um, and it was a real, it was a real benefit. I mean, I think we find often as FileMaker developers that there's a, um, often many of our clients are smaller businesses or have limited IT resources or even for larger customers, they don't have an IT department that has the time or energy to really focus on um, our project. If, if assuming they give us the blessing, they're expecting us to be minimally competent. And as a company that had 
technical resources in-house, not just smart, savvy developers who understood tech enough to not do damage, but actually experts like Oliver and his team, um, who really, uh, my, my partner, who really understood um, both platforms and, and, and how open and active directory work and all the other kinds of things that we rely on, storage and performance and other kinds of things. Um, it was really an asset as we went into each of these environments. We could offer both services. Sometimes we have clients we share, and often we have clients that don't overlap at all. I'd say, uh, anecdotally, maybe 20 percent of the clients that we have as a company, as a pair of companies, um, are shared customers, and then we each have our own contingent of who just do one or the other with us. And uh, but it meant you know we had someone else's door we could knock on and say, hey, we're having a problem with a performance situation, and we don't think it's the database. We think it's the server, and we could get a fresh set of eyes who really doesn't know much about databases but knows all about servers and look at it with us. Um, and it meant we could specify a project and, and so on. So it was always that way, and it was always under the one banner, skeleton key, which you know for. For the app dev, made a lot of sense. You know, if you know, if you ever watch Scooby Doo, you know what a skeleton key is. It's sort of the universal key that unlocks any lock. It doesn't matter if it was made for that lock. It just has this magic capability of adapting to the situation. And um, that was nice and vague and broad for application development, um, but it really didn't work very well for IT. You know, our application development services are very much domestic and international, and our IT services are very much regional and local. And so um, it wasn't clicking for people. And so over the years, as, um, as we evolved and grew, we had a couple of problems. One problem we had was that um, application development is very much a hand-to-mouth kind of um, lifestyle. Um, you may get lots of repeat business from clients, and we often measure our success by the volume of repeat business we get, but you still are doing project to project. It's really hard to come up with recurring revenue options in the application development world unless you have a product or you do hosting or something like that or have like a service maintenance kind of manage your server kind of thing. On the IT side, we also were just doing projects or time and materials work, but there was an opportunity for us to kind of kill two birds with one stone, and that, and that opportunity was managed services. And what managed services is, um, for those of us who are listening who don't familiar with it, is this idea that's not new. It's been around for a number of years. Um, of basically creating a, um, a, a, a sort of a fixed fee or a fee per seat or fee per computer kind of approach to provide comprehensive IT support to a company um, who may or may not have IT resources in-house who are capable of doing it. So the idea is that, you know, for a, basically like paying rent, um, a client can pay an, a, a fee and just have it all taken care of. You take care of their servers, you take care of their backups, you keep their software up to date, their antivirus up to date, you take phone calls when they have trouble with Word or Excel or FileMaker, whatever their problems are, you're that, you're it. You're their outsourced IT group. And so it allows small businesses for a relatively low cost to get access to a full IT team. As opposed to having one guy who can get sick and take vacations and, and get quit and maybe have limited skills, you know, you're getting a team of 20 people who can provide you know, uh, much greater benefit than that individual person can for maybe less, hopefully less money than they spend on that person's salary per month. Um, so we said, look, you know, we, we, we actually had a few friends here in the FileMaker community you may know of, IT Solutions out of, um, out of uh, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and uh, Anvil Dataworks and Corporate Network Services um, out of um, uh, Poolsville, Maryland, um, are two companies in the FileMaker community that had managed services divisions. There's other groups out there who have it actually the other way around, like Green Pages is mostly IT with a little FileMaker group. So, um, you know, there's any number of companies out there like us in the FileMaker space, which had sort of multiple divisions. And so we talked a lot with those um, 
people kind of, they mentored us through understanding how we could transform our IT group from this hand-to-mouth kind of project-oriented to this leveraged recurring revenue where a small elite team of people could support a large number of clients as an outsourced IT group and charge a sort of a flat recurring charge and use lots of technology to automate and manage the processes and kind of jump on the managed services bandwagon a little later than a lot of people, but without having to maybe learn it all because a lot of it was kind of plug and play. There's still a lot to learn where you're going to find your clients, how you're going to position sure. yourselves and such, but there wasn't a lot of technology or, or um, uh, is this a viable model kinds of questions like these guys had gone through. Well, I've started to see that. Some of my clients uh, have IT companies uh, that they outsource that to, and, uh, and they're great to work with because they're, they're they really know what they're doing, and and um, and because they're outsiders, they, they they don't have the, you know, we're we're the IT department, you know, so we're God, you know, they're very cooperative and very easy to work with. I found, uh, and so uh, I, I've started to see that more, and I, and I was thinking, gee, that'd be nice to have a company like that on on the side too, and that's what you're doing, right? And we and we and we really looked at it as, look, you know, for the longest time. Um, these two divisions have been treated as one company, uh, but they really operate very independently. And um, they probably, from an open book standpoint, could be measured independently on their success. We could allocate costs uh, to divisions like a percentage of rent. Um, we could um, you know, see how their, their income is compared to their expense and determine if they are independently profitable or one is carrying the other. Um, and more importantly, I think, we could really leverage the IT opportunity um, to diversify our income streams. Like, don't just have IT work coming in that's also hand-to-mouth, but come up with a recurring revenue stream through uh, hosting or backup services or managed services in a way that allows us to um, really get leverage, get termed contracts, get recurring revenue, you know, money every month or money every quarter to continue providing services, unlike on the FileMaker side where it was like a project, some follow-up, another project, maybe some follow-up, repeat business, new business. There was a whole lot of you know churn in the FileMaker side um, or a need to constantly bring in new, whereas on the IT side, we could sort of build a foundation and keep growing our base and then keep adding new and investing in more team members. But we really, at a certain point in scale, you start to get some really nice leverage. You start to be able to count on a certain amount of revenue per month. From a budgeting standpoint, it's not highly variable. You get kind of a stable basis to cover your costs. All these things come later as you build that. So we said, look, this is... Yeah, it does. That was the idea. And so we said, well, this looks really good on paper. Um, We can't do that under the same name skeleton key. We need to really depart from that. So it's still one company. Why did you decide that? We we just felt that um you know Oliver was always um, uh, frustrated I think that the skeleton key name was like I said earlier too vague uh, for the IT services okay. it didn't speak all by itself to what they did so if someone heard it they wouldn't know um, uh, we were about to go from offering this hand to mouth platform agnostic approach to one that was very much um, you know still able to support multiple platforms but very heavy on the Windows side. There's a lot more managed services clients in the Windows world than there are in the Mac, you know, Macs out there. Sure. And, um, in fact, we actually partnered with a bunch of other companies locally, taking care of their Macs because their managed services group could only take care of the PCs. So we realized, well, we should just be doing it, doing both. Um, so we said, look, this is a great opportunity to, to start a new service line, really invest in uh, the IT side of our business, and see if it, we can sw- flip the equation instead of skeleton key kind of pulling along IT. Let's see if we can get this equation the other way, get IT to generate recurring revenue and help pull along skeleton key, introduce us to new clients, 
provide a stable foundation from an income yeah, standpoint. I, I, I was going to ask that. Do you do you you find that because you're you're seeing more clients that that the opportunities for development work increase? We haven't seen that yet. We spent a lot of time talking with um with uh, other people in this in, in these industries about why there is or isn't more cross selling between these types of divisions when they are both under the same roof. Whether they have one name um, or whether they have different brand names like we do for their divisions, why isn't there more sharing? Why don't we have a 60% overlap in our clients as opposed to just a 20% overlap? And came up with all kinds of reasons that that various people espouse as to why that's so. Um, uh, My feeling is that a lot of that's bunk. I'm I'm a strong believer that we can, uh, especially I think now with Go and with custom business solutions, more so than ever before, um, because iOS kind of takes people out of just the Mac versus PC debate or the Mac and PC debate and really puts you into the mobile space. Right. Um, I think there's a big opportunity for us to improve the cross-selling overlap between our divisions. But a lot of it boils down to, does the client really need it? You know, Oliver and his team are not going to recommend a custom solution for a client when shrink wrap is a good fit any more than Skeleton Key is. We often tell clients right off the bat, I mean, it's one of the first qualifying questions is, have you done your research? Do you know that there's nothing out there that already does this? Because while we want to, we'd love to have your money, we, we want it to be for the right reasons. We don't want and, to reinvent you, the wheel. And you hate for them to find a product after they just spent a lot of money with you right. that does just what they want. And they go, how come you guys didn't tell me? Right. I mean, yeah. we can't always know. We, we're, we're happy to right. go find it for them. But we, we at least want to know if they did. Well, Oliver and his group will, will usually, as part of their job, seek out those solutions. And if they don't find them, then, then introduce them to us. Um, but we're, we're trying to find ways around mobile device and, and, um, and other things to kind of continue to, to bridge that divide for valuable Well, FileMaker uh, op- occupies a, a unique position there in that it's the only environment on iOS where you can develop apps without going through the App Store. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very compelling, I think it really, it's, it's a very compelling value proposition. I think it's like any other, um, it's in some ways no different than how we tried to you know, position and, and sell FileMaker in the past. It's just now we have a, um, a sexier platform to show it on. And it's very compelling if you've done any spotlights, you know, and, or sat in one of those spotlight events. It's very compelling for the people who are new to that to to hold an iPad in their hand while you're standing in front of them talking and making changes to the screens and having those literally appear on their screen in front of them. That's an entirely different kind of experience for them than they've ever had before. FileMaker um, has been working with Apple more closely over the last uh, year or so to um, really drive the FileMaker Go initiative. You can see that in the FileMaker marketing. We've heard that at DEF CON. Um, And uh, what that has amounted to uh, is, you know, they're doing a lot of work training um, uh, Apple employees at the stores uh, to understand what FileMaker is and how it will help them sell iPads and iPhones, that it can really help their business customers, not consumers really, but their business customers um, develop when there's not an app on the App Store that's a good fit, when they have a custom business process that really needs to um, be their custom process, and especially when it needs to dovetail with tools that they have back at the office like QuickBooks or existing solutions, Salesforce, whatever, that, that FileMaker is, is a really great way to go. Um, but, you know, Apple, I, I guess, wasn't as uh, familiar with 
with FileMaker um, and, and its, its availability to them. It was in the stores. It was installed as a demo on the on the machines, but it really wasn't uh, something that like the creatives or the business teams necessarily fully understood or were promoting. And of course, they want to sell iPads. They, they're they're less concerned on some level, even though FileMaker is an Apple company. They're less concerned, I think, about that than than moving iPads out the door. So over the last year or two, there's been a bunch of you know these anecdotal events where someone has gotten uh, go in front of somebody um, at, a, at a corporate customer who was buying iPads and suddenly they saw what they could do with it and then it took off like wildfire and, and it increased iPad sales. So they've, they've been pushing these, um, this growth of, of education and that's involved a bunch of what they call a, a, a FileMaker Spotlight where they basically provide a, um, an hour and a half or so, zero to 60 demonstration of the FileMaker platform for a, a curated audience of business, Apple business team clients. So the Apple business team in a store will invite their clients, their clients will come to an event, and either someone from FileMaker or an FBA will come, or both will come to the store and explain who FileMaker is um, and how it fits into the Apple puzzle and um, what the platform offers um, business customers with iPads and iPhones. And then we'll do a demonstration of let's just build an app. And then there's, you know, we have kind of have a, a scripted scenario of how that should all work and, and what you're trying to demonstrate and emphasize in terms of the features. And so it's not an ad hoc, everyone does it their own way. The idea is that you kind of follow something that the Apple business team expects is coming, that they're familiar with, that eventually they might even be able to do themselves. Um, and, uh, and the idea is you get people excited, to, interested in talking more about that, saying, you know, hey, yeah, you know what, we need something like that. I looked on the App Store, I didn't find anything that does what our business does, but that looks like we could build what we want in just a few days. And uh, and I think we we all know that a lot of our FileMaker opportunities start small. So the idea here, I think, is to um, to get to the edge where those small businesses are are, um, are first encountering. What's their opportunity for first encountering FileMaker? It's probably not going to be in your average store, but if they can encounter it via the business team at the Apple stores um, around iPads and other devices, um, it's a great opportunity to really just show them what it can do right in front of them. Sort of like that DevCon session. I don't know who that who did that, but that build an app in an hour. That's kind of what it is. Um, so I've actually been uh, doing a number of those and and, uh, and I think there's some good overlap. You know, The fact that we can do that and then on the flip side, my IT side of my business can and do mobile device management, kind of a nice cross-selling opportunity to say, now that you've decided you want to build apps and, and roll them out in iOS, you're going to have to manage a fleet of iPads. Do you know how to do that? No. Well, that's great. I can introduce you to somebody who does. Um, so that we're, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of opportunity here, I think, for us to offer something to their business customers on the bright source side, our, nice. our IT division, and uh, also for us to offer something to our app dev customers when it comes to managing these devices as they start to adopt them. I noticed that on your website, you um, you've got I mean you've got a BrightSource website and you've got a Skeleton Key website, and neither one of them mentions the other. Is that by design? Is that intentional? Um, well, so there's a brief mention of them. Um, I think in the um, how we do business or the um, about us pages, there's probably a brief mention in the text there about what brought BrightSource to light, and um, and similarly that we have a sister company on the other side. But you're right; it's not very prominent. It's um, and it's certainly not what we intended it to be. Um, all along, we have intended for there to be a highly visible, kind of persistent icon for Skeleton Key on the BrightSource website and for BrightSource on the SK website. And, and there's a couple of reasons why, I, and it just hasn't been implemented yet. Is really what it comes down to. It's oh, one okay. of that. It's one of that long list of things that want to do. Partly, this is because we're um, 
we're procrastinators or we're, we're, um, we're over-schedulers. We, we do much better as a company when we focus on one task at a time and we tend to take on 20 at a time. It, it um, almost looks like you decided to keep them separate. I know that we definitely wanted to keep them distinct. But so I want there to be a link between the two because I, I think that'll help with cross-selling. Um, I think okay. it'll, it'll also visually be good because one's very much blue and one's very much orange, and they will kind of complement one another and stand out. You know, it'd be very obvious when you see the bright source icon and, and see the skeleton key icon. It, it won't be hidden on the page; it'll kind of be visible. Um, but I, I think for 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 Oliver and the bright source side, he is very much doesn't want to muddy down that message. We're bright source IT. We provide managed services, Apple integration mobile device management, if we open up that Pandora's box of, and we also do custom software development, it kind of starts to get muddy. So we have to be pretty um, precise in the way that we link the two. On the on the skeleton key side, I think we'll be a bit more broad about it because we love being able to tell clients that we're not just a custom application development group who shrugs when the IT issues come up. We're a very capable group because we've got IT in our back pocket. We've got an IT group literally at arm's length um, just down the hallway, and they're almost always one of them is involved in some aspect of every project we do. Plus, I do a lot of the sales and engineering and, and sort of first-round discussions with clients, and I've got an IT background. So um, being able to do custom application development with IT um, skills is something we, we want to promote. So what you'll probably end up seeing if you keep an eye on the sites is that the um, – as we move to WordPress and out of the other CMS we're in, and we um, update the content and uh, to kind of revise it and freshen it up on Skeleton Key to make it even more focused on FileMaker and application development, uh, we will then link in RightSource. And then at the same time, we'll provide some minimal amount of visibility for Skeleton Key across the RightSource site. But um, that's also an interesting kind of dovetail into the whole notion is that we really try to treat Skeleton Key and BrightSource IT as much as we can. Um, they are one company, two divisions of one actual you know, company. But as much as I can, we try to let you know Oliver, um, my partner, run BrightSource as a company um, with whatever contribution I can offer from financial stewardship to marketing advice to um, – uh, whatever you know, just another opinion when it's needed. Um, and similarly, to um, to have Greg uh, with me, Greg Lane, run the skeleton key side. And so, if if Oliver feels strongly and can make a case that he we shouldn't have a highly visible presence for skeleton key on his website, chances are we won't. On the flip side, if I want to make BrightSource have a highly visible presence on the skeleton key side, I've got a lot more authority over that decision. I don't. I could override that decision, but. Um, I'd rather debate it and then, and then come to some consensus or defer to the person who really has uh, got primary responsibility. I may not agree with every decision that he or Greg makes about BrightSource or Skeleton Key, respectively, but I've got to respect their authority to make those decisions. Otherwise, you haven't empowered them. Right. I mean, and I'm just blowing smoke. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of FileMaker developers who are in the situation, you know, where they have a one-person business. When they start to think about where they're going to go, if they if, say they want to build their company, you know, you've brought up some great ideas. Uh, you've, you've made that transition um, a long time ago, and you, and you keep expanding. What, what advice would you give to a, uh, a small developer that's looking to grow his business? Hmm. 
I mostly have questions to prompt that person to think about things. I don't necessarily have all the answers. You know, one question I'd ask them is, um, do they have any savings or good credit? Because it, it takes money to um, make that transition. You can bootstrap it and spit and polish your way through elbow grease and whatever to make it happen. But um, I think at some point, if you want to advertise or hire or market, um, uh, this, I certainly believe uh, that it, it's awesome if you can uh, fully fund something without borrowing. But for And, and there's, there's people out there who espouse into a debt-free existence, and I would, I would love to be able to espouse that. But reality is that a lot of us have to borrow. And the SBA is a great uh, small business administration, offers a number of great instruments and works with your local banks and credit unions Got and such a, to make that happen. But, uh, um, the but at some point, you know, okay. you may need to so, borrow money. Uh, so knowing, over that A, right off the bat, are you starting from zero or do you have um, a nest egg that you can afford to invest and risk? Or are you able to borrow or are you going to run into um, issues there like you have some legacy of, of um, bad debt or bad credit? Another item I think would be, um, I don't think it's necessary, but in hindsight, you know, um, I don't often I don't often quote my dad in uh, in a way that's any in a positive way, but I will say that uh, one of the things he told me and hammered away at me when I was in college doing all that theater stuff we talked about earlier was that I should take some basic business courses, and I poo pooed that idea and uh, and I wish I hadn't. He was absolutely right. Um, if I had had a rudimentary understanding of a profit and loss and balance sheet, of assets and liability, of cash flow, um, I would have had a much more successful or I should say less painful uh, first years of being in business. Um, it really was just kind of winging it um, and uh, had good enough credit to borrow and credit cards I could use to cover things when I didn't have the cash and didn't have good collection. I mean, I, I did all kinds of stuff that I look back and it's just like such amateur hour type stuff. And so I think a, um, a basic rudimentary uh, instruction in um, not just, you know, balancing your checkbook, but in... Um, what is a profit and loss statement? What is cash flow and how is that different? What is the difference between profit and cash? Um, do you understand what accounts receivable is and um, what the, the concept of days sales outstanding is? Um, do you have a plan for collections? Um, uh, there's so many, so, so many really basic ideas. Uh, recently, I was, it was recommended to me to read a book called The Portable MBA in uh, Finance and Accounting, I believe, if I'm not mistitling it. And it is a really accessible um, sort of introduction to all things. In fact, you can skip the chapters that don't matter. There's like a chapter in there on mergers and other things, but there's some real basic 101 type stuff in there. And in fact, if you went to the great game or open book management um, type sites, you'll also find some primers on the, the basics of business literacy. They even have some some really great materials you can buy, like the Yo-Yo Company book, which is like sort of a, a kid's version of the dummy's guide to running business. It's like, imagine you were, imagine you were making Yo-Yos. You had to figure out cost of materials, how much you're going to sell the Yo-Yos for, how much cash do you have in the bank? Then you have to borrow $20 from grandma. Then you have to go buy materials. Now you've got X amount tied up in inventory. And they really use like a really simple analogy to help you understand how business works. And then they even have one for service companies where you're, you don't have tangible goods. You have you know, knowledge workers. But the point is that I had none of that. None of it. Smart guy, good education, you know, managed budgets for these theater shows and stuff like that. But no concept of... Um, of really what I was getting myself into. So that would be my biggest piece of advice is get some basic financial literacy under your belt through a local bank or a local community college or read a book, but don't just go out there and think you can just start running a business with employees without some of those. You don't have to have them all, all those ducks in a row, but you have to understand them because you're going to need to understand them very quickly. Um, know what the words mean. Yeah. I mean, 
was it someone, an analogy I got from one of our mentors is, um, you probably, I'm misquoting somebody, he's probably misquoting somebody, but it was something along the lines of, um, you know, um, profit is like, um, uh, I think it was something along the lines of like profit for businesses, like, you know, um, like water, you need it. Um, you can go for a while without it. Um, but cash is like air. You've got maybe a handful of minutes and you're done. And um, <laughs> so you could have huge revenue. You, you bill in a million dollars a quarter and you could have um, uh, awesome profit. Your costs are like, you know, half that. But no one's paying you and you're out of business. Done. It doesn't matter if someone owes you money. If you don't have that money, you're out of business because how are you going to pay rent? How are you going to pay salaries? Everyone's going to leave and then you might eventually collect that money, but your, your company's gone. You know, I was just reading in the paper today about um, you know, a number of manufacturing companies that you know, didn't have good cash management practices. They had $2 million in orders on the books um, and they went out of business. Even though everyone wanted their services, they couldn't afford to stay afloat to deliver those services because they couldn't meet their rent or pay the lease on their equipment or any of the things that are needed for the company to survive. So you don't need food and water right away. You can kind of get by being hungry and thirsty for a while. But you, you, you don't, air. Yeah, if you don't have air, you're done in just a few minutes and that's it. And I, that was probably my biggest failure is I didn't understand that basic concept. So I was looking at how we needed cash years and years ago and and it was all tied up in accounts receivables. Perfect example. I had no clue that I shouldn't go borrow money. I should start calling up customers and telling them to pay me because my money was already there. It was just sitting in someone else's bank account. They already owed it to me. Well, what was what was your uh, what was keeping you from calling them? Were you af- afraid to challenge discomfort? No, okay. no, just discomfort. You know, it's just you know, um, I like talking to people, but I don't like um, going to parties. <laughs> uh, once I start to talk to someone one on one. Uh, I'll ask them all kinds of questions and get into all kinds of discussions and be very candid with them, but I, I don't necessarily initiate those conversations. So it, it was just a matter of discomfort. I mean, another thing about Open Book, I think, has really gotten us being more candid with our own employees. It's made it a lot easier to be to be extraordinarily candid with our clients. It made it easier for us to say, you know what, we need to change our payment terms. We're not going to start out asking for net 30. We're going to start out asking for paid in advance, and then we'll negotiate to net 15. Now we're Now we're 15 days better than we were. And sometimes, actually, we get prepaid. Um, but it, to be bold enough to make those kinds of changes, I mean, we've changed rates over the years. We've changed billing procedures and policies over the years. We've changed um, rounding methods for our hourly work, um, the billing frequency. And as we, each of these changes has really been driven by an awareness that um, these are the things that we can control. We're not being unfair to, to make changes that will help us be a more successful business. If we're a more successful business, we can be help our clients be more successful because we'll be here for them. So we have sort of a fiduciary responsibility to ourselves, to our employees, to our clients, to our vendors, to steward the business in a way that will help it be successful, pay our bills, and expect to get paid on time. And that means sometimes holding the line. You know, If you tell a client these are the terms and they don't pay, but you do the work anyway, you have no one to blame but yourself if they go under and don't pay you or if they decide that they're not happy afterwards and they don't want to pay you. Uh, we just decided that... We had to protect our, our jobs. We had to protect our business solvency. And these were not selfish things to do. These were just good business things to do. But we didn't know any of that. So I would recommend anyone going into, hey, I want to get out of just me and hire some other people, that you want some basic financial literacy. You need to understand cash flow. Um, you don't have to understand it very deep. You can understand it from a yo-yo company, kids selling yo-yos. There's lots of easy ways to understand the basic concepts of cash flow. And there's some great resources out there. Um, 
And then uh, the next thing that comes to mind, I guess, is um, you have got to del- you, you should start delegating things to people early. The earlier you can trust the people that you, you know, there's everyone says these things like hire slowly, fire quickly. But once you've hired someone, however you go about hiring them, which isn't a trivial thing, the sooner you can delegate responsibility and ownership of whatever it is they're supposed to be doing for you, the better. Because they will invariably fail, just like you do, just like you did. And um, the sooner they do that, the sooner there's an opportunity for uh, corrective action and instruction um, and maybe process refinement or documentation but if you don't if you just micromanage it or you hold on to it or you eke it out you yourself won't scale as well um and you'll run into bottlenecks that you are part of um, and they won't ever really feel like that they've, they've that they're contributing as fully as they could so the sooner that you can get someone else doing the invoicing the sooner you can get someone else you know managing the queue of tickets to make sure that the response time is good the sooner you can get someone else doing the collections um the fewer hats you can wear and trust other people to wear, even if they won't wear them as jauntily as you wore them, the better. I'm still trying to do that. I'm still trying to get hats off my head and onto other people's heads. They don't always want to wear them. I don't always really let go of them. Um, but it's still something that is an act of, you know, all three of those things, financial literacy, understanding cash flow, and learning to delegate fully um, and trust other people to, um, to do it better than you if they own it, are, are probably the three things I'm still actively working on on a daily basis. We'll check back on Mark later to see how his division of labor is coming and what kind of benefit his two semi-independent companies are to each other. Before then, though, we'll glean from a lot of other people their take on the finer points of starting, growing, running, and profiting from a FileMaker-related business. This has been FileMaker Talk Business Edition, and I'm Jonathan Fletcher. You can send me your ideas, questions, topic requests, and especially who you would most like to hear spill their most useful wisdom on the wonderful business of developing in FileMaker. Just email host at FileMakerTalk.biz. That's host at FileMakerTalk.biz. Thanks for listening.